everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, this is episode 26, and this time we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 18. Before I get into the show, though, there's just a couple bits of uh, newsy business that I wanted to share. A few weeks ago, news came that they were holding a trio of casting calls for background extras in next year's Superman movie starring Henry Cavill. All three casting calls were in the Chicago area, and since I'm only about four hours south of Chicago, I decided I would go up and try to attend at least one of them. Well, unfortunately, things came up and I wasn't able to go after all, but I did submit my application online. The site says filming will be in August and September in the Chicagoland area, so hopefully I will hear soon whether or not my application was accepted, and I may have already heard by the time you hear this. Uh, The site says that they are, or were, I guess, looking for paid extras, and you know, I just kind of wanted to say, um, I'll do it for free, you know? I mean, five seconds in the background of a crowd shot, even if the movie bombs, just to be able to say that I was in a Superman movie. Um, I'm not getting my hopes up, but I think it would be really awesome. So keep your fingers crossed for me, folks. Uh, I'll be sure to keep you updated on when and if I hear anything. One other thing, I found a website that you might be interested in. The site is called Dead Man Comics Issue by Issue. The URL is deadmanissuebyissue.tumblr.com. And at that site, Brian Foss is going through and doing reviews of each and every appearance of Dead Man. He started about a month ago, as of this recording, with Strange Adventures number 205 from 1968. Dead Man made his first appearance in that book in a story called Who Has Been Lying in My Grave by Arnold Drake, Carmine Infantino, and George Rousseau's. As of this recording, he's just started on Dead Man's stint in Adventure Comics, which closes out the 1970s. So he's made a lot of progress already, and that means the DC Comics Presents issue, where he teamed up with Superman, is just around the corner. So I encourage you to check out his site. Um, if you like these, if you like the podcasts that go through comics uh, issue by issue, I think you'll like his site as well. Once again, that URL is deadmanissuebyissue.tumblr.com. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. 
The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. So like I said, this episode we are looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 18. That book was released sometime around September 28, 1939. It sports a November 1939 cover date and a 10 cent price for the normal 64 pages of content. Our cover is by Fred Gardner and it shows two aviators locked in a fierce gun battle. This isn't really my favorite Fred Gardner cover. But it is quite nice. There's quite a bit of action on it. But maybe the most notable thing about this cover, and certainly the most important as far as this show is concerned, is that this is the last Action Comics cover that we're going to see from Fred Gardner. Because beginning next issue, Superman takes over the cover of the magazine full time, which is something that I have definitely been looking forward to. The Superman story inside the book was written by Jerry Siegel, illustrated by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and edited by Vince Sullivan. It had no title originally, of course, but has since been called The Blackmail of Senator Hastings and Superman's Super Campaign. I quite like the Superman's Super Campaign title. It feels very Silver Age with using that super adjective. Unfortunately, it's not quite an accurate title since Superman doesn't really have a campaign in this issue. But our 13-page story begins with a half-page splash showing Superman, the man of tomorrow, rocketing upward alongside some buildings. In the background behind him, a plane explodes into a ball of flame while a second plummets downward, leaving a trail of smoke behind, and a third plane flies by unharmed. Superman appears to be leaping away from the planes, and there there are some additional lines arcing downward from the planes as if to indicate Superman had leapt away from the planes and is now leaping back up. But if that's the case, the position of Superman is a bit awkward. So I'm not really completely sure what's meant to be happening here. But still, Superman looks great on the splash, even if the rest is a bit sparse on details. The intro text this time was used in Action Comics number 10, which I covered way back in episode 11, as well as Action Comics number 17, which Charlie Niemeyer and I looked at last episode. The story begins proper as a Senator Hastings wraps up his re-election campaign. His yes-men congratulate him on a job well done, and Hastings leaves. He drives home through the dark night along a dangerous mountain road, when suddenly his headlights flash on a figure, a woman kneeling in the roadway signaling for help. The woman, who we later find out is named Trixie, tells Hastings that her car had veered off the road and crashed through the guardrail. She was unhurt, but lucky to be alive. Hastings offers to give the woman a lift back to town. The two exchange pleasantries, and as Hastings drives, 
Trixie secretly slips a small vial from her purse. Dropping it to the floorboard, she crushes it with her heel, causing the entire car to fill with sleeping gas. Trixie covers her mouth with a handkerchief as Hastings quickly succumbs to the gas. The woman hits the emergency brake on the car, causing it to come what you would think would be a rather abrupt stop. But still, the woman climbs out, pushes Hastings to the passenger seat, and drives the car to a wayside inn, a notorious roadhouse. Once there, two men carry the unconscious senator inside. The next day, at the Daily Star, Clark Kent is heading out to cover the story of a woman who attempted suicide, and invites Lois Lane along for, quote, the female slant. Not quite sure how there is a female slant on a suicide, but we haven't seen much of Lois at all in the comic books lately, so it's nice to see her back, at least briefly. And I also sort of question Clark and Lois covering the suicide to begin with. The paper I work for, and most papers in fact I believe, have a policy that they don't report on suicides. But 70 years ago, maybe that policy was less prevalent among the journalistic community. So, after Lois grabs her hat and purse, they head to the scene, where they find the woman recovering in bed. Upon seeing Clark and Lois, the woman bursts into tears, pleading with them not to print the story. She says she's embarrassed by what she did, and doesn't want word to get out, for fear of ruining her family. But meanwhile, unnoticed by everyone, Jean Powers, a sleazy writer for an equally sleazy tabloid called the Morning Herald, takes copious notes thinking that it would make a sensational story for his yellow journalism-loving paper. And this is interesting because, while we've seen reporters from other papers before, most recently in the Orphanage story from episode 24, this is the first time that a rival paper has been named. Nothing becomes of the Herald after this story, and it's apparent at the end why that is, but I love these little bits and pieces we get that help flesh out the world that Superman exists in, especially when it's something that you know, more directly affects Clark like a rival paper. So anyway, the next morning, back at the office of the Daily Star, Lois shows Clark the front page of the Morning Herald, which is trumpeting the story of the woman's suicide. Clark is infuriated by the article, and later meets up with Powers at a local diner. The narration tells us that it's, quote, a restaurant patronized by the press. Now, I've heard of bars or diners where police congregate, or, you know, military personnel, or certain blue-collar factory workers. But reporters? In my experience, reporters tend to be rather varied in the places they frequent, uh, looking for scoops and trying to keep their ear to the ground for news and, and whatnot. But again, 70 years ago, maybe things were different. And it's not really a big deal for the story, the real purpose of the diner was making it easy for Clark to find powers without a lot of rigmarole. I'm just throwing it out there. Oh, and there's a sign at the diner advertising fruit pie for 10 cents, which of course made me wonder if, you know, had I been alive then, would I have gone for the pie or the most recent issue of Action Comics? And yeah, I'd probably go for the comic. Anyway, Clark confronts Powers, saying that printing the article wasn't very sporting. Powers replies, neither is this, and takes a swing at Clark. And the next bit is nice. I'm just going to read the narration. It says, feigning cowardice, Clark ducks Powers' sudden blow. Though pretending clumsiness, he deliberately rams his elbow against Powers' jaw. And I love this bit. 
It doesn't happen as often as I'd like because I imagine the scenarios are hard to set up, but I love seeing Clark use his bumbling persona to actually do things other than just be bumbling. I can accept Clark pretending to be a clumsy milksop as a long-standing and maybe even iconic part of the Superman mythology, but sometimes it's really overdone. You can have Clark be a mild-mannered and meek individual without making him into a total lily-livered buffoon and having him claim to be cowering under his desk whenever there's trouble. But when Clark can take those shenanigans and use them to actually secretively help people or to give a criminal his just desserts, like he did here, I really like that. So anyway, Powers takes a swing at Clark, and Clark ends up clocking him, which knocks Powers out cold, amazing the other patrons of the restaurant, including Lois, who says that the strike must have been an accident. Later, back at the paper, Clark talks to his editor, seen here smoking a pipe, because apparently pipes were really big in the golden age, and his editor lightly chastises him for fighting, then tells him to go interview Senator Hastings. Clark arrives at Hastings' home and starts to say that he's a reporter. But before he can finish, Hastings cuts him off, telling him that he should come in and that he didn't expect them to send someone so soon. Hastings goes on to say that he needs more time because he's unable to raise the $10,000. At this point, Clark is all confused. He explains that he's a reporter from the Daily Star, and hearing that, Hastings quickly hushes up and sees Clark out, leaving everyone's favorite reporter very confused about the whole situation. And Clark looks really great in this panel, too. There's a heavy Paul Cassidy influence in this story. Both Clark and Superman have looked nice the past few issues. At this point, Cassidy is really gelling a lot more with Schuster's style than they did in the earliest stories that he worked on. But as Clark is leaving the senator's house, he spies everyone's favorite Weasley journalist, Gene Powers, paying the senator a visit. Finding this suspicious, Clark circles back to the house, intent on finding out what Hastings and Powers are up to. Then, using his super-sensitive hearing and the penetrating vision from his X-ray eyes, Clark is able to spy on the goings-on inside the house. And while Superman using his X-ray vision is nothing new, we've seen that and read Superman using that power before. What's significant about this instance is that for the first time, we actually see a physical rendering of his x-ray vision at work. We see Clark standing by the house, then in the next panel, Clark is staring at the wall with a sort of energy blast emanating from his eyes and hitting the wall. Now, obviously he's not shooting lasers or heat vision from his eyes at this point, it's just a rendering for reader convenience. Though I can't help but wonder if this too contributed to the confusion, or if not the confusion necessarily, but the practice of Superman's X-ray vision and heat vision being used interchangeably, like they were in the Silver Age. But we see that, then in the next panel, we see the wall with an image of Hastings and Powers overlaid on top of it. So this is a very cool moment, and definitely a historical first, art-wise. I'll be sure to scan this sequence for the show notes so that you can check it out if you don't have access to this story. I wish I could tell you if this technique is used uh, in more stories down the road, but I'll be frank, and I just don't remember. Um, I know we see an artistic rendering 
of Superman's X-ray vision in future Golden Age stories, I just don't know how frequently that technique is used. So, as Superman peers through the wall, he sees Powers threatening to release some illicit photos of Hastings, ruining his re-election campaign, lest the senator pay him $10,000. Powers shows him the photos, and we get a close-up panel of one of them which shows Hastings sloppy drunk and clutching a bottle of booze. Trixie, the woman who had abducted him at the beginning of the story, is with him in the photo. And it's not said in the text, but the implication that I took from it is that she's a prostitute. Or, at the very least, not his wife. You know, back in the day when that was frowned on by society. But uh, seeing the photos, Hastings is taken aback. He says that he doesn't remember a thing between picking up the woman and later when he woke up in his car. Power says that he's not interested in his alleged memory loss before warning him once more to pay the $10,000 or he'll regret it. Hastings says he'll think it over, and Powers takes his leave. Clark, having overheard the blackmailing attempt, is absolutely livid. There's nothing I hate more than a rotten blackmailer. I think Powers deserves something more than the beating I gave him. And this is another instance of a resolved Clark, and another nice image of him, too, this time looking more squinty-eyed than in the previous panel. You can almost picture, and I'm sure most of you listening have seen Superman the movie. If you haven't, stop whatever you're doing, pause the podcast, and go watch it. Preferably the 2001 special edition, but any version will do. Just go watch it. There's that wonderful scene where Clark is in Lois's apartment and she's in the next room. We see Clark take off his glasses and stand up straight, and you see that magical transformation from Clark to Superman in Chris Reeve's body language. You can almost imagine that here, with Clark standing outside of Hastings' home, and as he hears Powers' threat, he stands up a little straighter, his eyes narrow, his voice drops an octave, Bud Collier style. It's just great stuff. So that night, at his apartment, our hero sheds the disguise of the mild-mannered reporter, and Superman goes into action. A tremendous leap propels the Man of Steel out into the blackness of the night. Shortly after, the fantastic figure can be seen streaking down towards Gene Powers' home. And Superman is, of course, not flying at this point still. But should you not know better, you wouldn't be able to tell from these panels, as we see a very dynamic shot of Superman leaping from the window upward with his leg bent and an arm outstretched, and then in the next panel, we see him gracefully swooping down towards the home in a swan dive. Superman climbs into Powers' home and discovers a safe hidden behind a photo hanging on the wall. He rips the safe's door off with his bare hands, and inside, Superman finds a complete list of Powers' blackmail victims. What luck! Superman exclaims. What luck indeed. In his bedroom, Powers hears the commotion and thinks that it's a burglar. Unsuccessful in finding his gun, Powers grabs a bow and arrow hanging on a nearby wall, creeps into the next room, and orders Superman to reach for the sky. Then Superman makes a really odd comment. He says, I get it. You want to play games. You be Robin Hood, I'll be Rip Van Winkle. Um, I get the Robin Hood reference, with the bow and arrow and all, but I'm not quite sure how either of those things relate to Rip Van Winkle. Robin Hood is English folklore dating back to the 13th century, if not before. Rip Van Winkle was written by an American author in 1819. 
Am I just being dense here, or am I missing something? Because I really don't get it. William Tell would have been a more apt comparison, and even there, Robin Hood and William Tell aren't really related. But at least there, they both have the, you know, bow and arrow thing going on. But perhaps Superman realized his own mixed illusion, because he quickly changes his mind, saying that he has no time for games and charges toward Powers. Powers warns him to stay back, but suddenly an arrow explodes from the bow and flies directly at Superman's head. Superman snatches an arrow out of the air, which seems like a super feat, but given that in about nine months from when this story was published, we're going to see a Batman story where Robin is knocking arrows off course with a slingshot. So maybe it's a pretty easy feat. I'm not going to try it, but be my guest. Regardless, after grabbing the arrow, Superman streaks forward, roughly grabbing the bow from Powers. Pointing out the window at a distant electric sign, Superman points out a singular bulb on the sign. Then taking aim with the bow, draws back and fires an arrow, shattering the bulb with a perfect bullseye shot. He then tells the stunned Powers to listen up and reads him the riot act over his blackmailing activities. He then orders him to leave town or else before leaping back out into the night. Powers then places a call to the Morning Herald's publisher, a man named Hamilton, who tells him to get to the office right away. Superman trails Powers to the Herald building. And this is interesting. The narration simply says, shortly after, high overhead in the sky, Superman trails Powers' auto. And the panel shows a sort of bird's eye view looking over Superman's shoulder at the car on the road below. We can assume Superman is taking tremendous leaps to follow Powers. But there's really no indication of that, especially if you're just skimming through these stories relatively unfamiliar with the character. So anyway, Superman listens in as Powers and Hamilton talk things over. Powers tries to tell Hamilton about Superman, but the publisher just blows him off, saying that Superman is no more than a myth. And it's interesting that uh, some people in these stories still think Superman's a myth, since he's been very public in his antics lately. I mean, even commandeering radio stations for announcements. And he's been doing that for several issues now. But I do like the Superman as an urban legend idea. And as, as I've said before, particularly early in his career and in this era where uh, the 24-7 media didn't exist. And I'm, I'm going on a lot of tangents this time. Sorry about that. But to get to the story, Hamilton tells Powers to forget about the Superman business and get over to the Wayside Inn because the girl, Trixie, and the photographer, Benny, who had assisted them in blackmailing the senator, are demanding more money. Powers heads out, and Superman is hot on his heels, clearly running this time, and watches as Powers enters the inn. At the Herald, Hamilton speaks via phone with Hastings, and the senator tells him that he can't and won't raise the blackmailing money. Making good on his threats, Hamilton hands the photos to a copy boy, telling him to rush them down to production. Back at the Wayside Inn, Benny and Trixie tell Powers that they want more money. Powers calls them a couple of cheapskates, and Benny starts to pull a gun. But Powers is a bit quicker on the draw and shoots Benny. As Trixie cowers on the floor, Powers turns to shoot her as well, but just then, Superman busts through the window, demanding, Lower that gun! Powers fires at Superman, 
but our hero charges forth with the bullets bouncing off his invulnerable chest. Superman grabs Powers and gleefully tosses him across the room and into a wall. The ruckus draws the attention of an onlooker, so Superman grabs the onlooker and tells him to tell the crooks to clear out of town once they revive, before leaping out once more into the night. His destination? The Morning Herald. While Hamilton is sneering over the front page proclaiming the senator's alleged misdeeds and the looming ruin of Hastings' career, Superman enters through the window and snatches the paper from his hands. Seeing that they went with the misleading story, Superman grabs Hamilton and demands that he stop the presses. Hamilton just laughs the laugh of the evil, saying the first batch of papers are already on the streets and the thousands more will be soon as they are about done printing. He then mocks Superman, saying that there's nothing he can do about it. Now, we've all been through enough of these stories by now to know that Superman doesn't take no for an answer, haven't we? I would certainly hope so. So, as you would no doubt expect, Superman takes off in a run, heading towards the paper's distribution area. A flock of trucks loaded with papers is getting ready to leave the bay. Superman plants himself in their path and channels his inner Gandalf with a you shall not pass. But much like the Balrog, the drivers aren't riding that train and opt to go on ahead. The lead driver hits the gas and the truck roars forward. But Superman simply stretches out his hand, stopping the truck dead in his tracks. A second truck swerves around Superman and the stalled truck and out into the street. With a leap, Superman is next to the truck. He grabs the truck and gives it a toss back inside the garage. Superman then warns uh, some of the workers to clear out and sets about the business of ripping the presses apart piece by piece. Hamilton begs Superman to stop, but Superman continues his swath of destruction until the entire plant is demolished. Superman then coerces Hamilton to give him the photo plates as he orders the crook once more to leave town. Hamilton eagerly obliges on both points and Superman crushes the plates thus ending the threat to the senator's career. A week later, Clark congratulates the newly re-elected Senator Hastings, and the senator thanks Clark for the article, no doubt clearing up the debacle stemming from the photos. Clark thanks him, thinking to himself that Superman also offers his thanks. And you have to wonder exactly what Superman should be thanking the senator for, since it was Superman that did the senator a favor. But still, just a, a great, great story. I love the opening of the story, where you see the senator get abducted and carried into the hotel. Then you don't see, you know, you don't see him again or find out what happened to him or who the people were that abducted him until pages four and five. It feels very, like a very cinematic opening or a or a cold opening to a modern day television drama. Siegel's really been perfecting these openings that draw you into the story like here or the second Action Comics issue that Charlie and I looked at last episode. I like that because, as I said, it brings you into the story and holds you there, but it also feels more natural than, well, Clark was walking down the street and saw someone in trouble, or, okay, kids, Superman has a problem. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those types of openings, you know, from time to time. But using them for every story is tiresome and can easily become forced or contrived. And I loved Clark's resolve and anger, really, over the antics of Powers and Hamilton. Though his ire was based more on the blackmailing and the fact that they ruined people's lives with their yellow journalism, 
As a journalist, it makes a whole lot of sense that someone using those tactics would get under Clark's skin. Though in this era, Clark is a reporter more out of necessity than a, a love or a desire to have that profession, but still. And it's too bad that in this golden age, there simply wasn't the page count or the, the deeper characterization to explore that further. We didn't see a whole lot of Lois again in this story. She was just there to accompany Clark to the interview of the attempted suicide and then later to the diner. But what we did see, even after Clark got into the fight at the diner, she didn't belittle or emasculate Clark once. Granted, she had very little to do with this story, period, but it makes me wonder if Siegel isn't softening her portrayal just a bit from here on out. Uh, there's something in the story we're going to cover next, yeah, next episode that uh, feeds into this too, so we'll get to that then, but this is something I really want to keep an eye on from here on out. I was pleasantly surprised to see the politician wasn't the villain of the story, but in fact the victim. As the champion of the oppressed, Superman is usually taking on people in power in these stories, and a crooked politician is right up that alley. So when they introduced the story with Hastings, I thought it would go that way, and I was happy to see that it turned out different, and that the paper's publisher and the reporter were the heavy. On that note, though, when Superman goes to the distribution area and encounters the truck drivers, they are every bit as nefarious as Hamilton and Powers, even going so far as to try to run Superman down. And I do get tired of the idea that everyone involved with an entity must be evil. Um, good people can get caught up in or you know, unknowingly be involved in bad situations. But on the other hand, if there are innocent people employed by the paper and Superman wrecks the joint, he's not really helping them much. And that's one of those gray areas that they simply don't have time to deal with in these Golden Age stories. I did, I got a laugh though, um, given that this is the first paper, other than the Daily Star, that has played a significant role in the story, I, I liked that the chief's name was Hamilton, since John Hamilton will go on to be the most iconic version of Perry White in Adventures of Superman. And don't call me chief! And I thought that was neat, even though it was a complete and total coincidence. Art-wise, this is another strong issue. As I said earlier, Cassidy is really gelling with Schuster's style at this point. In the scene where Powers is threatening Hastings, the same scene Clark is watching with, with his x-ray vision, Powers is kicked back in the chair, he looks very relaxed, but at the same time, very arrogant. And towards the end of the story, uh, the scene where Superman invades the distribution area of the Morning Herald, that's a really strong page of art. You don't even need to read the dialogue or the narration, and you can tell exactly what's going on through the entire page. The art just really tells the story. They're also, at least for now, still staying very consistent with Superman's costume. Superman's belt is colored yellow in the story again. The S on the cape is again hit and miss, but when it is there, it's the red S with a yellow field and a yellow border just like on his chest. I've also noticed Superman's spit curl has become more pronounced, or at least more consistent in recent stories. I mentioned in one of the first episodes, maybe even the first episode, that it was sometimes hard to tell if Schuster intended for there to be a spit curl or not, but lately it's definitely been there most of the time. 
At the end of the story, we have another ad reminding us that the issue of New York World's Fair Comics is only 15 cents at all newsstands, and that you shouldn't fail to read the thrilling and daring deeds of Superman within. If you're interested in reading this story, and can't cough up the many dimes that it would take to buy the issue today, like many stories we cover on this show, it's been reprinted twice, first in Superman The Action Comics Archives Volume 1, and more recently in Superman Chronicles Volume 2. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Tales of the Justice Society of America every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Other features in this issue include the regular strips of Pet Morgan, Chuck Dawson, Clip Carson, Tex Thompson, and Zaytara. We also have a new feature replacing the recently departed Marco Polo strip and that is The Three Aces. This strip told stories featuring Fog Fortune, Gunner Bill, and Whistler Will, aviators and soldiers of fortune. This strip was done by Bert Christman, and interestingly, Christman did many of these stories while flying planes himself during a tour with the United States Navy. Christman left the strip in 1941 and went on to fly planes and fight in China with the American Volunteer Group, also known as the Flying Tigers. Tragically, Christman's plane was uh, part of a squadron that was sent to cut off an attack on Rangoon in Burma on January 23, 1942, and Christman was shot down and killed in the battle. I will put a link in the show notes to an aviation history site that has more about Christman's service and additional biographical information on him. If you're interested, I would strongly encourage you to check that out. Since he didn't do any Superman work that I know of, it's unlikely I'll feature him in a spotlight segment, but his story is rather interesting. This issue also has a full-page ad promoting New York World's Fair Comics and Superman No. 2, and a half-page ad for Movie Comics No. 6. 
And last but not least, we have our fourth Superman of America page. And it starts out with a message from Superman himself. It reads, It is hardly necessary to tell you that every building or structure that is erected with the idea in mind that it will become permanent must have a good, solid foundation. Otherwise, the building will soon crumble and fall to the ground. So too with clubs and other organizations. They must be built upon solid ideals and worthwhile principles. Knowing this, I have endeavored to form the Supermen of America on the principles of strength, courage, and justice. Three worthwhile ideals, if there ever were any. The first of these foundation stones, strength, can and should be applied to both the body and the mind. With strength of mind, a person can withstand and overcome the influences of evil, while strength of body enables the person to physically carry out the conviction and disdain he has for wrongdoings. He then goes on to tell a story about a boy named Jack who met some other fellows and they invited him to join a club called the Purple Mask. To be initiated, he had to steal a watermelon, but Jack had the strength of mind and character to refuse, and the strength of body to beat up the Purple Mask's leader. So always keep your body physically fit to cope with any obstacle that may arise to influence you to do evil. We also have our uh, normal membership information and a reminder about the offer to sign up three friends and receive that dandy Superman emblem for your shirt or jacket. Absolutely free! And then there is Superman's secret message, which this time can be decoded using code SATURN, number 5, on your Superman of America decoder book. And the message is, Honesty at all times is absolutely necessary to strengthen one's character. Other books out in September 1939 included More Fun Comics number 48 with a Craig Flessel cover showing a guy fighting a lizard creature or maybe a really tiny dinosaur. I like to think that it's a giant lizard creature though because it just sounds more manly. We also had Detective Comics number 32 with a very nice Fred Gardner cover of a police officer wrestling a tommy gun away from a thug. Unfortunately, the contents of the book are not quite so awesome. The Batman story wraps up the Monk story that started last issue, and actually got my vote for the worst Batman story of 1939 over on Legends of the Batman. The issue also has the last Slam Bradley story drawn by Joe Schuster. Mark Bailey takes over next issue, and the strip also gets a reduction in pages. And even worse for poor Slam, on the cover, his name is misspelled. And I should know. There was also Adventure Comics number 43, which has the final Wayne Boring drawn Federal Men strip. Mark Bailey takes over on that next issue as well. And finally, there was All American Comics number 8, the only All American Publications book of the month. And in fact, it's the only AA book, period, at this point, since Movie Comics ended last month. This issue sees the debut of Gary Concord, The Ultraman, by John L. Bloomer, and it replaces the Bobby Thatcher strip that ended last issue. In an issue or two, they're going to introduce Gary Concord Jr., who also takes the name Ultraman. That Ultraman disappears after issue number 19 of this title, but makes a reappearance in 1985 in the pages of Superman number 411, which is the comic with the rather famous cover marking Julius Schwartz's 70th birthday.
rocketed from the doomed planet Krypton, the baby Kal-El was found and raised by the Kents. Now grown, Clark Kent, as Superman, fights for truth and justice. But years later, a rocket holding his 17-year-old cousin, Kara Zor-El, lands on Earth. Now, living in Metropolis, she fights for truth and justice alongside her cousin as Supergirl. Together, they form the Superman family and fight for truth, justice, and the American way. The Superman Family Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast that covers any and all Superman-related books that fall under the umbrella of the Superman Family. Power Girl all the way to Crypto the Superdog, as well as all your favorite Superman-related news and much, much more. Join me for some Superman family fun, only at supermanfamily.com. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Bad Girl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Bad Girl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Okay, folks, that does it for another episode. Thank you once more very much for joining me this time out. Next episode, we'll be looking at the eighth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip, a monumentally-sized storyline called Royal Death Plot, so be sure to come back for that. Until then, any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. You can also stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and other related postings. If you'd like to follow the show on Facebook, the link to the show's Facebook page is at the site as well, or you can just search for Thrilling Adventures of Superman on Facebook itself. If you'd like to subscribe to the show directly, at the site you'll find the RSS feed and the iTunes link. And as always, any and all iTunes reviews are welcomed and appreciated. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, which is home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. I also invite you to check out my other show, Legends of the Batman, which I co-host with Michael Kaiser, and you can find that at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman And I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
to the shadow.